For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. So uh, it's a pleasure to uh, have with us this morning. Let's see, I, I can see. Where's Chris? Oh, there you are. Hi, Chris. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have with us this morning, Chris Ives. Uh, Chris uh, has spoken at Ancient Dragons Engate a few years ago or so uh, before the pandemic. Um, and uh, Chris is a professor of religious studies at Stonehill College near Boston um, and very fine scholar uh, in many areas. Um, uh, he's going to focus on ethics in East Asian, uh, in East Asia and East Asian Buddhism and in Zen today. He's written a number of books related to that, uh, including um, uh well, uh, Zen, uh, Zen Awakening in Society. Um, uh, can make sure I don't leave any out. Uh, or, uh, the important ones out. Imperial Way Zen, Ichikawa Hakugen's Critique and Lingering Questions for Buddhist Ethics. Um, an Inquiry and Translated in Nishida, Nishida Kitaro's Inquiry into the Good. Uh, and also His, uh, Hisamatsu Shinichi's Critical Sermons of the Zen Tradition very important figure in um, uh, Japanese Zen in the 20th century. But also, uh, recent, more recently, uh, Chris has focused on Zen uh, um, and the environment. His most recent book, uh, why, don't, why don't I have it? Um, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, a very fine book called Zen on the Trail, Hiking as Pilgrimage. So a very practical book about uh, Zen hiking and, and uh, Zen on the trail. So anyway, Chris has been, uh, is, a, is a fine speaker and will be talking to us this morning. And I'm really happy to have you with us, Chris. So please uh, take it away. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dan, or Tygen. I go way back with Tygen, so I flip back and forth between Dan and Tygen. So forgive me, but thank you, Tygen. And it's great no to problem. be here with your Sangha. Um, thank to all of you for joining today. Let me just get a thumbs up. How is the audio? Is it pretty clear? All right. Thank you. Because I do have a headset and mic if we need to go to that, but uh, I trust I'll have a good connection today. Um, So in any case, what I'd like to do is perhaps talk for 30, 40 minutes. And because I'll be referring to certain figures and using certain quotations, I will use a PowerPoint here. Uh, So bear with me. And as you may know, when you share your screen with a PowerPoint, it's very hard to see the chat. Um, So maybe you could indulge me. I'll just make my presentation, again, 30, 40 minutes. And if you have any questions, either keep them in mind or drop them into the chat. And then we should have a good 15, 20, or even more minutes for discussion. I don't need to uh, end this right at the top of the hour. So I'm willing to stay on and be in conversation with all of you. So let me uh, share my screen. What I'm going to do is uh, make a few comments about early Buddhist ethics quite briefly. 
Um, one or two basic things about Zen ethics, especially in terms of Dogen, and then turn to the real topic for today. What has been the traditional Zen social ethic, especially in Japan, over the centuries? Um, and in many ways, it's a, a de facto social ethic as opposed to some sort of systematic standpoint that Zen thinkers have worked out over the years. And then again, we'll have plenty of time to discuss. So let me just share my screen here. I see one or two people. Tigan, can you see that uh, slide? David, can you see that? Are we good with the uh, sharing? All right. Thank you for the thumbs up. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to move forward here through a few slides, and we can return to these later. If there's something that uh, you want to question about or discuss, we can always come back and check out the slide. But I just want to share this famous verse from the Dhammapada, an early Buddhist text ascribed to the historical Buddha himself. And you may have run across this in your study of Zen, this idea of refraining from all that is detrimental or unwholesome, unhealthy, attaining what is wholesome, purifying the mind. This is the instruction of all the awakened ones. And a lot of early Buddhist ethics, as you may know, hinges on this idea of restraining oneself from doing detrimental actions. And in terms of the moral psychology of Buddhism, this idea of refraining from all that is detrimental has to do with detrimental at two levels, inner mental states and external actions. And this isn't really rocket science. As you may know, the early Buddhist ethic, the moral psychology of Buddhism, talked about different mental states, detrimental or unwholesome, especially the three poisons. And these get translated different ways. You may have a different translation, but ignorance, greed, and ill will. And what we're talking about here is the cause of suffering, the second of the four noble truths. And in terms of Buddhist psychology, the ideas, and this is something we're all familiar with, if you're filled with greed or ill will, something like anger, that will often play out in terms of your external actions, um, actions based on your anger. I'm angry and I say something nasty. I'm filled with desire and I rip someone off or I hit on someone at a party in a really weird and abusive way. And in terms of, you know, what are these detrimental actions? Yeah, we can turn to things like the five precepts, these five actions that we're asked to, yeah, refrain from. Again, this idea of restraint or refraining. Or the overlapping three morality components of the Eightfold Path at the bottom of this slide, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And so in many respects, the Buddhist path, at least in early Buddhism, is looking at how we can restrain ourselves from these detrimental external actions. And it's not just some, you know, an issue of, yeah, Buddhism is all about reducing suffering. If I indulge my anger um, and kill someone or harm someone, that will be causing harm and suffering in other people. That's part of it. But to a large extent, the moral psychology is looking at something that we're kind of familiar with, how when we act on certain mental states, like our anger, we say something nasty, there's a feedback loop where if we act on our anger and indulge it, say or do something nasty, that will reinforce the anger, get us more caught up in it. And so often when we talk about people who are rageaholics, 
we might say, yeah, they're really hurting a lot of people. Their external actions acting on that anger is causing a lot of harm in their community. But at the same time, they're only making themselves a more miserable person. That idea that by indulging their anger, they're getting more caught up in anger. And so a lot of early Buddhism is trying to break back that feed loop, feedback loop, ultimately wanting to go at those mental states through various practices. But initially, and this is maybe what's going on a lot with the morality components, the Eightfold Path, restraining yourself from acting on those mental states. Again, refraining from those actions listed in the five precepts or the morality components of the Eightfold Path. You also saw there in that quotation, that idea of restraining from the detrimental, cultivating the wholesome, purifying the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. As you probably know, at the same time, there's an attempt to do certain positive actions to work on those internal mental states like greed, ill will, and ignorance. So as many of you know, to deal with your greed, the impetus is to give. People, for example, in Thailand, giving food to the monks when they come around in the morning, begging for alms. You see this in Japan and Zen monastics as well. And by giving, 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 you're letting go of that attachment, that greed, that craving and clinging, and cultivating a positive mental state of generosity. And as we saw in that original quotation, you're basically purifying the mind of these detrimental mental states that are ultimately the cause of suffering or extending loving kindness, metta. Some of you may have done um, metta exercises, wishing the well-being or the awakening for others, and thereby cultivating a more loving spirit rather than being filled with anger. And meditation there, cultivating wisdom. And so what you have here is this idea in early Buddhism that you need to purify the mind, in a sense, reprogram your mind And rather than being filled with these things that cause suffering, greed, ill will, and hatred, is reprogram your mind, purify it, and basically have yourself with a mind free of these causes of suffering. And as you probably know, this is seen as a lifelong or multi-lifelong practice. With awakening, this purified state of mind, you've eradicated these causes of suffering, no more suffering the cessation. As some of you may know, nirvana comes from to blow out a flame. And so by purifying your mind over many years or generations or lifetimes, you're eventually blowing out nirvana, those fires, the passion of anger and desire and all other sorts of detrimental mental states. And then, yeah, bringing it around to Zen, and I know Ancient Dragon Zen Gate is there based in um, the Soto Dogen tradition. And a couple of these quotations, let me just say here, if if you're interested in any of this, um, I'm pulling a lot of this from a piece I wrote for what was called the Oxford Handbook of Buddhist Ethics. Um, I could drop my email address into the chat later. If you want to email me and get a PDF, of an article or a piece I wrote for that encyclopedia called Ethics and Zen. Um, and you can get this source of some of these quotations. Um, a couple of these Taigen himself translated. And in the article, you'll see I'm attributing these to uh, Taigen. Um, I'm not doing that here just to save some space. But as many of you know, what Dogen emphasized, contrary to early Buddhism, is not so much observing the precepts, restraining yourself is the first step to begin holding yourself in check 
And as you can imagine, in addition to reducing that negative feedback loop, if you restrain yourself, you're less an out-of-control sort of party animal um, out there indulging your desires out of control in your life. Part of what you're doing, in addition to breaking that feedback loop, is to pull back from, in a sense, out-of-control external actions and being able to focus more more internally. Some of you may know that in in Indo-European languages, uh, the term yoga, coming from Sanskrit, has the same derivation as the English word yoke, Y-O-K-E. This idea of yoking an oxen so it will pull your plow or a pair of oxen. Um, We also use that expression, reining yourself in, R-E-I-N, just like when you pull back on the reins to control a horse. And so in many cases, yeah, early Buddhism is there seeing the precepts as a way to restrain yourself. What's interesting, when Dogen, in some of his writings, talks about morality, he really says, yeah, you should maintain the precepts, that's important, but you should not see them as of primary importance. In a sense, rejecting that early Buddhist idea that the first stage is to rein yourself in, to yoke yourself or restrain yourself, and then turn to meditation. But what he says here is obeying the precepts is to practice concentrated meditation or zazen. When doing meditation, what precepts are not held, what merits not produced? And so you see Dogen here saying it really is something that hinges on zazen. When you're properly doing zazen, that will help you get your act together, follow these precepts. You don't necessarily have to start with the precepts. Those morality components of the Eightfold Path, hold yourself in check, and then we can talk about meditation. Dogen here, in a sense, is going right to meditation as a way to follow those precepts, to hold yourself in check. And this comes um, into play, and I'm sure Taigen in his Dharma talks and his teaching, um, has shared this with you. This idea of practice and confirmation or practice and realization. And what Dogen's looking at with this idea that, yeah, practice, like Zazen, is not a means to an end, a future nirvana, a future purified mind, a future purification. That sort of means-end approach in earlier Buddhism, where they do talk about a gradual process of purifying your mind, ridding yourself of things like the three poisons. But rather, when zazen is done fully, you're confirming your original awakening that's in a sense deep down all along, as opposed to I got to really purify my mind, reprogram my mind, and then I'll get a taste of awakening. Rather, awakening is there um, basically beneath us, deep in a mind. Uh, I'm not sure how Taigen expresses this, but um, it's basically there within us. Buddha nature, awake, innate awakening. And so fully giving ourselves to Zazen is not a means to an end, but that very act of pouring ourselves into the breath, um, pouring ourselves into meditation, dropping out of monkey mind is a way to bring forth awakening. And forgive me, Taigen, I'm sure you have more sophisticated and eloquent ways of expressing this to your sangha. Um, And uh, yeah, I trust all of you can turn back to him for clarification of this. And what's interesting... That's pretty good, Chris. (laughs) Yes. That's pretty good. Go ahead. (laughs) All right, I'll keep going, Dan. Um, And so in many ways, yeah, what we have here is that the precepts and monastic codes, 
just to circle back, are not necessarily there to restrain detrimental actions as the first part of the path, but in some respects are interpreted as demonstrating how an awakened being acts. Or when one acts that way, one is expressing one's Buddha nature. In other words, when we're there speaking truthfully, non-harming, not stealing, engaging in something other than sexual misconduct, that is how an awakened person acts. Um, And basically what Dogen said is, yeah, we don't throw out the precepts, but we don't see them as this initial stage of restraining yourself as part of this gradual purifying of the mind, but rather when you observe the precepts or these guidelines in the master codes, just like when you pour yourself into Zazen, you are manifesting that original awakening. You are demonstrating how an awakened person will act generously, lovingly, um, without stealing, harming, etc. And so that's where Dogen you can see this in the bottom here, Um, we'll talk about, yeah, emulating the masters of old. Take them as your role model because they and their actions are expressing innate awakening as opposed to doing proper action as part of a gradual process. So in this case, in some respects, the precepts are descriptive, describing how an awakened person acts. They're not harming, they're compassionate. They're not ripping people off, but being generous. In other words, and another way of saying this is his approach is performative. When you act in accord with the precepts, you're expressing, manifesting, or in a certain sense, performing your Buddha nature. If we look at Rinzai Zen, as you know, the other main strand of Zen in Japan, there are one or two minor ones as well. Um, but Asai, um, basically a little younger than Dogen, but virtually a contemporary who brought the Rinzai strand of Zen to Japan from China. He sounds a little bit more like early Buddhism. Like he says here, the Zen school or his version of it considers keeping precepts to be what precedes everything else. Again, observing precepts, those morality components of the Eightfold Path as an initial step to get yourself in check, to break that negative feedback loop, to stop being out of control so you can be more able to focus inwardly in meditation. And he says, yeah, if you want to attain meditative absorption, jhana, you must depend on practicing morality. Again, morality or observing the precepts, restraining yourself as a kind of precondition for deeper meditative states. Again, sounding a little bit more like early Buddhism than Dogen. And what he said was, what you need to do is not just receive the precepts, as I assume some of you have done in that um, Jukai ceremony. Sometimes it's in American Zen centers, a way of really fully becoming a member of a Sangha. In traditional Japan, it's central to the ordination process for ordaining monks or Zen priests. And what uh, he said was, yeah, you, you shouldn't just receive them. You should protect or guard them. In other words, actually practice them. Don't just do the ritual of receiving the precepts, but after you do receive them, really do try to put them into practice. And although he says, yeah, receive them and protect or observe them, he doesn't get into specifics. I'm sure a lot of you have read Thich Nhat Hanh, um, other contemporary engaged Buddhist thinkers, um, and maybe in your song as well, As you know, in North American Zen, and I think in European Zen as well, 
and in other parts of the world, in Latin America, often there's an attempt to really work with the precepts, um, to apply them and work them out, not only in terms of individual ethics, but also to social ethics. And this is our segue now to our main topic of the day, because one of the things that um, Asai said when he said you really should, if you're a Zen monk, you really should observe or practice the precepts. In many ways, what he was saying then was that doing that is not necessarily simply something to promote your own progress on the Zen path, to get better um, equipped to cultivate meditative states, or in Dogen's way of looking at it, more able to express your innate Buddha nature. But rather, he sees this as something important for keeping the country safe. In other words, what he's doing here is not just simply trying to revive the precepts as a foundation for cultivating mental states and wisdom, like early Buddhism, but what he's doing here is saying that the safety of the country, okay, here we now, we're going into social ethics, sort of political philosophy, in his milieu, and again, we're talking early 13th century Japan, you know, roughly 800 years ago, what he was claiming, and this is true for other types of Buddhism, is that one of the ways that Japan will stay safe, not get invaded, not rebellion, not famine, not plague, is if the monks who are there doing certain rituals and chanting certain sutras, which are seen as having the effect of protecting the country or protecting the emperor's realm, for those rituals to be efficacious, and these are rituals directed at protector deities. Some are Buddhist, some are Shinto. That's a whole different talk for another day. But the idea is the clergy need to do certain rituals, chant certain sutras, direct them toward higher beings who will see those sorts of ritual activities and in response will keep Japan safe. And the belief was for those rituals to have efficacy for the gods or heavenly Buddhas to receive them and act to protect Japan, the person performing the ritual must be morally upright. And so part of what Asai is emphasizing, you've got to observe the precepts, is not just simply that will help you on your personal path, but unless you are morally upright, your rituals will not be effective, the gods or heavenly Buddhas will not receive them and bestow those favors on Japan. And so morality serves the land. And in many cases, this is a conservative morality. Keep things harmonious. You know, keep the person in power there firmly in control. Um, Work against rebellions and other sorts of social unrest. Um, But the belief being this will keep Japan harmonious and safe. Um, It's interesting, even though Asai sounds a little bit more like early Buddhism, you got to observe the precepts. That's foundation for cultivating those mental states. There are other people in the Zen tradition, the Rinzai Zen tradition, who sound a little bit more like Dogen. Not so much worried about the precepts, but really looking at the importance of Zazen. So here's Hakuin saying all of these things, like the precepts, repentance, you know, giving, that generosity, other good deeds, it all comes from Zazen. And one true samadhi extinguishes evils, it purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. In other words, the Zen view that in the depths of Zazen, 
with whatever kind of transformation or perhaps awakening experience or experiences that will nip in the bud. Let's call it, you know, the self-centered little ego that is all caught up in ignorance, greed, and ill will. You don't have to be doing things like extending loving kindness, worrying about the precepts, giving to the monks to purify your mind. You just go deeply into zazen and you can nip the problem in the bud. And you see this idea um, in contemporary Zen thinkers, um, especially those who were influenced by, um, in this case, Rinzai Zen. And this is Masao Abe, um, a well-known Zen thinker. As some of you may know, he's involved in a lot of interreligious dialogue. And what he basically argued was, yeah, by working with koans and pursuing Zazen, you will have some kind of awakening experience to non-substantiality or emptiness. And in that breakthrough and that awakening to emptiness, you've basically nipped in the bud the problem, kind of like Hakuin was saying a minute ago. And through that powerful awakening experience, you will be automatically equipped with wisdom and compassion. And out of that wisdom and compassion, kind of like a bodhisattva, with those two virtues or wholesome mental states, you will automatically make vows to help others and engage in action to that end. Or as I paraphrase it at the bottom of the slide, once you wake up, you'll automatically be a wise and compassionate person like a bodhisattva, and you'll make vows and take action to liberate others. And this is, in many ways, Abe's social ethic. And this is not atypical. Let me just say here, and I touched upon this a minute ago, through most of Japanese Zen history, even though the precepts will be there in ordination ceremonies, jukai, and even though people like Asai said, yeah, you sort of have to observe them, in many cases, there wasn't a lot of attention to observing them, applying them to issues like sexism or other sorts of issues, class discrimination in feudal Japan. In many ways, for Soto Zen, there was very little treatment of the precepts except to say, like Dogen, this is how you manifest your Buddha nature. These are guidelines for how an awakened person acts. Act that way yourself, um, as opposed to it being a basis for a social ethic. In a sense, what people like Abe and a lot of Zen people said historically is practice, wake up, you'll have wisdom and compassion, and that, in effect, will be your social ethic. But then in many questions, you know, arise, and I won't dwell on this, but the whole question of, you know, compassion and social ethics. I mean, one question is, in actual Zen life, is compassion primarily attained through zazen and awakening? Or if we think about Zen liturgy, Zen iconography, Zen messaging, there's a lot going on in actual Zen life, as you probably know, emphasizing compassion. Um, Compassionate bodhisattvas like Kannon, or in Chinese, Guanyin, Avalokiteshvara, um, these compassionate role models. And so one question, just empirically, is insofar as there are some Zen people who are compassionate, um, do they really get it through Zazen? Or is it a kind of socialization, all this messaging in Zen liturgy, texts, and iconography? The other thing that's tricky is you probably know about uh, compassion. 
is that in Mahayana Buddhist text, and you probably know Zen is one form of Mahayana Buddhism, there is um, allowance for breaking the precepts if the actor's intent is compassionate. And so in some cases, this has resulted in the notion of compassionate violence. If someone's about to harm the Dharma, maybe killing them, preventing them from getting all the bad karma they would get for killing, and also protecting the Dharma, maybe because the motivation was pure, it was a compassionate way to keep that person from bad karma and protect Buddhism, maybe that's an exception to that precept to refrain from harming or killing. The other thing about compassion, um, and this, some of you may know, Christian social ethics, ethicists sometimes talk about theological virtues, um, like faith, hope, and charity, and love. And in many cases, they'll say, okay, those are virtues, but we need to bring in justice to give them some specificity. It's great to say, love your neighbor, but it's good if you also couple with that couple that with some street smarts, some education, some savvy about injustice and justice. And there's a parallel issue there with um, compassion as a basis for social ethic. So even if we want to say, okay, if you wake up and that is how you get compassion, or you get compassion through other signals in Zen life, like the liturgy, is that sufficient as a social ethic? We know there are a lot of things people do in the name of love. They'll say maybe to their children, the reason I beat you with a belt all your early life is because I love you. It was tough love. And yeah, there's love and compassion there. But without the wisdom, without the savvy, is it ethical? Is it just? The other thing that um, I just want to mention quickly here, when you think about ethics in Zen historically, yeah, we often think about, you know, kind of the low hanging fruit the five precepts, the bodhisattva ideal with wisdom and compassion. But when you look at actual moral cultivation in Zen monastic life, traditionally in Japan, you have these other values and virtues. Um, Now, some of these are more or less ethical. Um, I'll just leave these here for a second. You know, restraint, simplicity, thrift, the importance of labor, the idea of doing things thoroughly. Um, The idea of diligence, apply yourself to your practice, make that effort. Um, Perseverance, you know, sitting through pain, humility in the bowing, um, self-criticism when you, in a sense, repent for actions you've done based on the three poisons, deferring to authority, respect. And there's one virtue that's key in traditional Zen social ethics that we don't hear very much of in the West, Maybe we can talk about the reason for that later. And that's this idea of indebtedness. In Japanese, it's on. And on is a term that basically connotes two things. The blessings you receive, that's on. And the indebtedness you hold after receiving those blessings. And a lot of traditional Buddhist texts will talk about four types of on depending on the source of those blessings or the person or persons in or to whom you are indebted. And the traditional four, as you can see here, are the ruler, one's parents, all sentient beings, and the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And this plays out a lot in Zen social ethics in Japan, even though we don't really hear much about this in Western Zen. And so, for example, here are two major Zen figures, Takuan and Hakuin, talking about our indebtedness 
to, in this case, your feudal lord. You know, these individuals existing um, in a feudal period in Japan, all the things for which you're indebted to your lord, the clothes, your sword, and then the second quote, the food you get, your whole body, emphasizing this sense of um, blessings received and indebtedness you should now have, and a lot of emphasis on repaying that debt. I'll just mention as a footnote here, this is one of the elements in the Zen discourse about serving the emperor during World War II. Um, As the great patriarch of Japan, you've received all these blessings from him. How could I ever repay him? Well, maybe military service would be one way to start repaying that immense debt. And as you can see there, the reference to one's feudal lord, throughout most of Japanese history, virtually down to only the more recent present, Zen has been very much there um, overlapping with assimilating, promoting Confucianism. Um, A lot of centers of, and we don't need to talk about what is neo-Confucianism, but a lot of um, centers for Confucian studies in Japanese history were Zen monasteries. Um, In many ways, when Zen teachers did give talks for the laity for ordinary folk, um, these kanahogo, in many ways, these were very much steeped in Confucian values. Um, for example, um, one major Zen figure, Suzuki Shosan, um, in his discourse to the lay people, talks about how Confucian virtues play out in terms of how warriors should act, how farmers should act, craftspeople and merchants. Um, you can see here, too, Takuan um, talks in some of his sermons for the laity. Again, a very famous Zen master. His talks for the laity are filled with Confucian constructs of loyalty, filial piety, benevolence, and righteousness. And in many ways, if we want to use you know, contemporary language at the risk of being anachronistic, it's a fairly conservative social ethic. Um, when we think about you know, Zen in the West going back, say, to the 60s, oh, it's sort of this fringe, hippie, lefty approach. In Japanese history, most forms of Buddhism were fairly conservative, working with the rulers, um, talking about obedience and hierarchy. Um, But you can make the argument that compared to other types of Buddhism, Zen comes out on the top in terms of social conservatism. And part of this social conservatism is there across Japanese Buddhism. And it's the idea that the Dharma and the law of the land work in harmony with each other. This idea that Buddhism is there to protect the ruler and the country. I mentioned that earlier when uh, Asai was talking about rituals to protect the country. And there is a kind of symbiotic relationship with those in power. And not just Zen, but other forms of Buddhism at different points in Japanese history, for example, would do rituals, chant sutras, for the health and well-being of the shogun, or for law and order, you know, peace on the land. And in response, in this kind of symbiosis, coming from biology, a kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, uh, the ruler would give those Buddhist institutions who were doing rituals to protect the ruler, and in response, the ruler would reciprocate by giving them land, um, building materials, peasant labor to build some of the uh, materials. And this kind of quid pro quo symbiosis 
um, is something we see across Japanese Buddhism, and especially here, as I'm saying, um, in the Zen tradition. And we could also talk about the social class of a lot of these Zen leaders, many of whom did indeed come from upper class um, aristocratic backgrounds. There's another interesting aspect there. And what this results in, in many ways, um, this symbiotic relationship with ruling powers, but also certain other aspects of Zen approach. Um, you've seen d- different Zen texts. I have one here from Bodhidharma about not resisting, not picking and choosing, but basically accommodating circumstances, um, entrusting yourself to things, yielding to things, rather than being contrary or oppositional. Or, for example, in the case of Linji or Rinzai, the founder of Rinzai Zen in China, he talks about the true person of the way as according with circumstances. He entrusts himself to things as they come. Um, He rolls with things. Or, in many ways, this is the kind of approach where we get that popular expression, going with the flow. Um, One 20th century Zen figure called this Zen's accommodationism. Um, That's not exactly an English word, but with this symbiotic relationship with ruling powers and this sort of go-with-the-flow approach, what you don't see in Japanese Zen social ethics is speaking truth to power, a prophetic stance, resisting, going to jail for your convictions. In many ways, there's an attempt to work with the ruler in this symbiotic relationship and, in some respects, go with the flow. Another thing that comes in here is a certain deterministic read on karma, the belief that if someone is poor, it's because of something they did in a previous lifetime or if they're sick or struggling or whatever. And we see the great uh, Rinzai Zen master Hakuin basically laying this right out there um, in terms of, yeah, you're reaping the fruits of seeds you planted in previous lifetimes. Um, Another major figure, Muso Soseki, Uh, who's responsible for a lot of the beautiful rock gardens in Kyoto, um, says, yeah, being poor is karmic retribution for being greedy in a previous life. And so we get that karmic determinism. And though we know that karma cause and effect is not only from past to present, but also present to future, something that Gandhi and others really lifted up, you don't necessarily get that read in traditional Japanese Zen and traditional Japanese social ethics, what you basically get is more of you're born poor because of things you did in the past. And the message is accept that, know your place. And yeah, hope that if you are obedient, if you stay in your place, if you don't cause trouble next time around, maybe you'll be born less poor or in another social class. And let me just end with one more slide and then we'll open it all up. Um, Traditional views of women Um, This is a whole talk in and of itself, but you will see Japanese Zen figures buying into broader discourse about how women are, in many ways, emotionally constituted in ways that make them more prone to the three poisons. For example, they tend to anger easily and stir up delusion over trivial things. Not unlike Western sexism, saying women are hysterical. They're emotional. Um, Men are rational and can control themselves. Um, That kind of sexist binary 
um, is there in Japan and pretty much is bought into by a lot of prominent Zen figures. Um, yeah, women are more caught up in the three poisons. Men can restrain themselves more and cultivate the opposites, wisdom, generosity, loving kindness more easily. But anyway, thank you, everybody. Let me stop there and, uh, yeah, let's open it up. And uh, obviously, if any of you need to log off, feel free. I'm willing to stay on beyond the hour if that works for you. Or I don't know if we need to pull the plug at the top of the hour. But anyway, comments, questions. Thank you for listening. I know that was a lot. Yes, thank you very much, Chris. And just for everyone, uh, I'm sure there are lots of questions and comments. I'll call on people. Uh, please, you know, if you want uh, to make a comment or question, um, you can raise your hand or uh, in the participants window, you, there's a way to uh, uh, raise your hand there at the bottom. Um, so, uh, of course, we uh, come from the Japanese Zen tradition, but what Chris has revealed for us is that uh, a lot of the values in traditional Japanese culture and Japanese Zen are not what, are not how uh, we necessarily think about uh, ethics and social values. So I'm sure there are comments and questions. Please feel free. And, and we can go for a while. So uh, comments, questions, responses for Chris. David Ray, please. Um, Chris, thank you so much for that talk on so many levels. So I, I, I'd like to say two things and then ask you a question. So um, thank you for acknowledging this thing about, about Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, like other religions, like, for example, Catholicism being multivalent in that it can be totally, you know, coexist, like supporting, supporting power, supporting oppression, and can also be a force of liberation. And thank you for the for, for own. I didn't know that that concept, and I've been wondering where's gratitude in in Zen Buddhism. So so thank you for that. But my, my question is is about the earlier part of of your talk when you were talking about moral psychology and and zazen. Um, so I did uh, I did TM, and I also did uh, mindfulness meditation. And there are two things that 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 I was told I would get pragmatically from it, you know, sort of morally. And and it seems like they came true. One was like in regard to things like, like, like flash anger, which yeah, has been an issue in my life, that I would get this thing that I would have a kind of little like, you know, microsecond sort of like, you know, that hoop shot slow-mo thing, and I would be able to, to control my reaction better. And it feels, it feels like that that's happened. And then the other thing was sort of the thing of not, not having to believe my thoughts, not having to put my credence in, in, in my thoughts and having to say, having to say I to them. Both of those seem like things that, that, that have come in some measure for me out of practice, um, where, where, does, where does this tradition talk about those things, or, or does it talk about those things? Yeah, in terms of meditative fruits that also bear um, on ethical issues, you will find people, um, I mean, I sometimes personally, as a practitioner of Zen, not as a, a teacher or a Roshi or anyone like Taigen, but I often uh, play with the whole idea of spaciousness and how in Zazen, like you're saying, um, by sitting and working with our breath, we can get out of being totally entangled in 
thinking, worrying, obsessing, and get that slight detachment from that, observe that. And I think that's going on in the Eightfold Path to mindfulness as a kind of calming meditation and getting a little space and being able to observe what's going on in our head. And I think that does bear ethical fruit. If we're more aware of what's going on in our head, we can acknowledge yeah, our anger, our desire, as opposed to, for example, you know, someone who's a rageaholic and can't even begin to really see the anger they're filled with. And if you call them on it, they'll, you know, they'll yell at you. I'm not a rageaholic. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's a spaciousness there, being more aware of stuff um, and hence less act to act impulsively on it. And I think another kind of spaciousness in Zazen by sort of slowing down is not only seeing one's anger, and by being aware of that or mindful of that, maybe less apt to get triggered, but also opening up space between the mental state and the action. Again, yeah, being less um, reactive. Um, sometimes when I think about the three poisons, I, I think of them in terms of reactivity, um, you know, attraction, aversion, like, dislike, um, how we are, you know, always interacting with reality. I like that. I don't like that. Approach that. Avoid that. Um, and I think, yeah, meditation makes us more aware of what's going on in our head. It opens up space so we can see that, detach us from it. But also, yeah, as you're saying, opens up space between the mental state and the action that, you know, may follow from it or an action that we want to take that does not indulge it. Thank you. Yes, Paul. Paul Disco. Thank you very much, Chris, for uh, a very broad, very inclusive uh, 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 description of the path of Buddhism through 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 Asia. Um, you hit almost every point; it was quite wonderful. And I especially like that you brought in Confuci Confucianism because that is a very large part of what, is, what we what the, what's the, the Japanese experience. And but my my personal experience was that. Due to due to Buddhism's um, indulgence in in the ruling in the in the as a as a as a power as a power as a tool in the ruler's uh, tool chest to, to to rule to rule the world and to protect the nation and as and the Confucian uh, order and social order and social hierarchies and the Shinto uh, believing in 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 this, you know, mythical, not mythical, but uh, uh, spiritual powers um, that that in the midst of all that, Japan is probably the most totalitarian society ever devised in the world, and that's my experience. Whatever, whatever, you, you, everything was prescribed, even your thoughts were prescribed. You, you could, because there was so much nonverbal communication that, that even if you thought something that was not appropriate, uh, you would, you would get a response, but but my my feeling was that my my experience was that Zen was the way to escape that that the, the bounds of that totalitarian state. So the Zen was the liberation from that personal liberation from that, and a personal way of dealing with with incredible um, incredible tight restrictions of uh, Japanese society. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I've never really thought about what might or might not be the most totalitarian society. Um, in terms of your point about 
or your sense that you know historically um, the powers that be or authoritarian ideologies permeated the thoughts of people. I'm not so sure about that. A lot of Japanese, and this is um, something that I, th- I think fits the sort of largely Confucian social ethic, um, will make the distinction between tate mai and honne. And tate mai is sort of your, your public face, your facade, deferring to authority, doing all the etiquette, wrapping presents properly at the gift-giving season, things like that. Um, or, yeah, deferring to your boss when your boss screams at you or bowing toward the emperor. And the honne um, is referring to your real heart and mind, what's really going on inside. Um, so historically, I think a lot of Japanese would agree with you, Paul, um, about you know external deference to authority, but I'm not so sure that that would be seen as permeating the inner life of Japanese. Um, and a lot of Japanese will push back. Sometimes when people say, oh, you know, um, we all the, have all these rugged individualists in the U.S. or other Western countries, and that group orientation of Japan, they don't have individuality, they sacrifice themselves. Um, yeah, my sense of the Japanese is, no, there's a rich interior life, there's a lot of individuality, there's ways to act out and ways to resist, but... Um, but um, I'm trying to think of what was your second point, Paul? There was something. Well, where... uh, anyway, I, I agreed totally with you. There's there's the inner and outer life, and I think that the outer life being so strict, like being in a monastery, but going with a moving when the bell rings, allows you a certain kind of freedom, inner yeah. life freedom that 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 we in America don't have a chance to because we're always questioning: Should I do this? Should I do that? The Japanese never have to ask those questions; it's all prescribed for them. But internally, yeah. they can go anywhere, and they're 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 their fantasy life is incredible, but it's just, it's, I totally agree with that. But, um, but I'm thinking more, more of the sense of the sixth patriarch of, of there being nothing to polish, of, mm-hmm. of seeing seeing things as one, seeing things as as not corrupted, as as um, seeing yeah. things as as perfect as they are. Yeah, and um, I, I think I just remember your yeah your first point about how. The practice of Zen is a way to escape that authoritarian or totalitarian system. I think there is an element of that, and, and that maybe that's kind of an interesting paradox. Um, I don't doubt that practitioners of Zen through the centuries in Japan were not going, um, if I want to use the language of going, going to some interesting um, contemplative states, meditative states, states of awakening that did extricate themselves at least in internally, from the sense of you know all the strictures, all the social constraints, all the expectations, um, I think you're right. I think Zen practice, and I know from uh, you know practicing in Japan with you know various people, including lay people, a lot of them would see Zen as or their meditation as a place to go, so to speak, to get around all the pressures of being a daughter-in-law in a sexist culture or a woman hitting the glass ceiling and getting paid less for equal, you know, unequal pay for equal work. And some people would see Zazen as, um, yeah, a way to work with that in a sense, escape it um, and maybe come around and, and deal with it better. Um, and so maybe one of the big ironies is institutionally, Zen is implicated in certain structures of control, the Confucian ethos, um, but in terms of meditative experience, etc., Zen may actually subvert that, at least for individuals, or extricate people from it, even though institutionally it's propping it up. 
one of the things one of the things I found that people were very negative about Buddhism, the young people, because Buddhism kept all the records, the family records. And so if you wanted to marry the pretty girl you saw down the street, they would go check the records. Oh no, she's the wrong class. You can't marry her. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a way of keeping the social order, keeping the social, uh, uh, um, the class, class layers uh, separated. Yeah. Which was resented, of course, after the war. Well, that's another thing I can just mention, mention institutionally in terms of, you know, Zen social ethic. Um, throughout the Tokugawa period, and many of you may have seen the film Shogun or read the book many years ago, the Tokugawa period going from 1600 to 1867, through that period, Buddhist institutions did function in a lot of local communities as the school, as the records keeper, in that sense, as arms of the state. Um, and part of the backlash against Buddhism in the late 19th century, when Shinto was lifted up, the mythos around the emperor as a rallying point for a new modernizing and militarizing Japan, Buddhism went through a short period of being condemned and in some respects persecuted because it was seen as an arm of the previous regime, the 267-year Tokugawa shogunate. Um, and that's another example of um, Zen and other types of Buddhism playing that conservative role, being arms of the state. Yeah, other just, things, yeah, please. Just Yeah, so just the, the fact of Buddhism being, having a very strong institutional role. Uh, I wanted to uh, add a comment from Eve in the chat box that she mentions a you know, Ethiopi- Ethiopian proverb Quote, when the emperor passes by, the peasants bow low and silently fart. Uh, so. <laughs> Many forms of resistance, I guess. <laughs> so, that's from James Scott's book, Weapons of the Week. Weapons of the Week, good. Yeah, Nyozan, a comment. Uh, yes, thank you for that uh, really great uh, sort of overview. Um, one thing that sort of st- uh, presents itself from that is that to a very high degree, it appears that uh, historically the social dimension of, of ethics um, uh, endorsed by Zen practitioners um, actually came from outside, from another tradition. And I think about the difference between what you've described historically in Japan and what I witness among Zen practitioners in America and the West today. And I ask myself, um, you know, are we somehow really diverging from what the earlier folks did or in a sense continuing that sort of tradition in the sense that we are also in some sense drawing from the outside in the case of Western, it's, it's what I witness. It's our, either largely coming from sort of, we could maybe just say the, you know, prophetic religious traditions and then sort of more sort of liberational political traditions. And uh, so in, in that sense, we're doing much the same thing. Um, I wonder if you could comment on that. Oh, yeah. A lot of us who are, you know, 
looking long and hard at Buddhist ethics, both in Asia and in the West. Yeah, that comes up a lot. Um, And you're absolutely right. We could say that historically in Japan, most of the elements of the de facto Zen social ethic came from outside the tradition. Now, one thing that's tricky is the traditions are influencing each other so much in Japanese history, it's hard to say what's in and out. Just like if you look at, for example, early Christian theology, how much of that is coming from Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, how much of it is coming from Greek philosophy, and what we now have as Christian theology, is this Greek, is it, you know, um, there in the Hebrew Bible? But bracketing that, I think you're right, by and large, um, historically, yeah, the de facto Zen social ethic in Japan um, largely came from Confucianism, as opposed to, yeah, Japanese social ethicists in the Zen tradition, doing what a lot of people do nowadays, which is, okay, how can we, you know, apply the five precepts socially? Um, You know, maybe stealing has to do with also taking uh, indigenous people's land. Maybe we should repatriate some of that land. Or what about extracting resources from other countries? Does that violate the precept? What do we mean by sexual misconduct? Um, And I think you're right. In many ways, people have said, what's going on in the West is not so much an act of retrieval, or to use a little jargon, a hermeneutic of retrieval, a methodology of retrieval saying, yeah, there are all these overlays in Zen in Japan, let's sweep that stuff away and drill down into what we might see as primary Zen texts, or primary Buddhist texts, and articulate a social ethic out of that, or Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of us who became interested in Zen in the 60s were already kind of lefty protester hippie kids. And so to what extent is the more engaged Buddhist stance on women's issues, the environment, violence, etc., an act of sort of converts to Buddhism, drawing this out of the tradition or bringing their liberal, like you were saying, um, libertarian approaches or social justice approaches based on the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Um, And in many ways, I think you're right. And so then the question is, okay, do we have to really get into saying, are these new accretions or new ways of interpreting Buddhism around, yeah, feminist concerns or womanist concerns, racism, classism, homophobia, whatever, um, are these authentic? um, And can we find support for these stances in Buddhist texts? Aha, here's a feminist statement, or here's a Buddhist text saying sexual orientation doesn't really matter as long as people are respectful and loving and not harming, or something like that, or rather simply say, no, I want to make an argument that these stances, though they may have come from Western liberal traditions, um, do function to reduce suffering. And you can make the argument that's the crux of Buddhism. And so it's skillful means. Yeah, feminist critique of patriarchy and pay inequality. There may be nothing like that in Buddhist texts, but if it reduces suffering, that accords with core Buddhist values, hence it's legitimate as a Buddhist ethical move or ethical stance. So, yeah, a lot of interesting issues there, and I'll stop there rather than uh, <laughs> doing all the talking. Well, just yeah. just to follow up a little bit, um, it occurs to me also that, you know, we tend to think of, you know, something like Buddhism as we kind of reify it, of course. And, you know, it's just a fact that anything like that is always going to, 
appear in a particular cultural form. It has to have form. And in the case of, you know, the West, uh, it's of necessity going to be quite, quite different. I just find myself, you know, I get concerned about these things because I'm, uh, I'm so committed to my Zen practice and, and in some ways so uh, appalled or, or not appalled, but, you know, don't want to associate with that kind of conservatism and accommodationism that you spoke of. Um, but I want to maintain my le- legitimacy as a practitioner, that kind of thing. I tie myself yeah, up in knots. Yeah, one thought that comes to mind is you're talking about, you know, people reifying Zen or Buddhism. And I imagine you know, all of you know what reifying is in terms of making it something substantial and enduring as opposed to being more of a shifting, moving target. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of Buddhism, yeah, there have been attempts to, you know, often in polemics like inter-Buddhist debates, um, people saying, yeah, we are closer to the original Dharma. Um, we, we are closer to original Buddhism or to the essence of Buddhism. Um, but as a scholar and as a sort of, you know, religious historian, um, yeah, I don't want to reify it or take it to be something monolithic. There are a lot of Buddhisms out there. There are a lot of Zens out there. There are a lot of mindfulnesses out there. Um, and so then the question is, yeah, but how do you want to adjudicate, um, do you even want to get into having a debate saying, yeah, that conservative support for the Japanese military by prominent Zen masters during World War II, that is, you know, um, what, a tragedy and blasphemy and a violation of the core Zen Dharma, whereas people marching around climate crisis as Buddhists with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, that's genuine Dharma. Um, it gets very tricky in terms of, yeah, all these different forms of Buddhism. And you're right, Buddhism has always been accommodating the cultures into which it came. It came into China, the Confucian and Taoist influence. I mean, some people say what Buddhism is, or what Zen is, is in many ways, is Mahayana Buddhism colored by Taoism, and then in terms of ethics, colored by Confucianism. And then, yeah, we have Shinto and Japanese values. So, um, yeah, to, to say that, oh, no, you know, Zen is being rendered impure by these Westerners with their liberal agenda. Well, Zen's been transformed every step of the way in every culture it's moved through. Um, and so, yeah, maybe the recourse is to say what's authentic Zen, but then that gets pretty dicey. Yeah. You know, what's your touchstone or your criteria for authentic, real Zen? Maybe each Sangha has to decide it for themselves and then hold it lightly. And just to, fo- just to follow up on that, I think from the beginning, many uh, fine teachers going back to the Buddha have said that the Dharma, the teaching, has to, has to accommodate itself or work with the particular situation and culture and times in which it, in which it is uh, being expressed. So uh, that's part of what we're facing. Anyway, there's lots of different people have... Uh, have uh, hands up. So uh, Fushin, then David Weiner, then Eve. Fushin, next. Thank you. I'll try to be really brief. Uh, I'm interested in the difference in uh, earlier forms of Buddhist ethics from the Mahayana um, traditions with respect to this issue of restraint. 
because of how it sets up a kind of a dualism between the restrainer and what is being restrained in earlier forms of Buddhist ethics. And the other, and I I just, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you please to comment on these. Um, And the other thing is that in the U.S., a lot of the difficulties in Zen sanghas that have arisen have been because of the more authoritarian, uh, the initial more authoritarian structures of some of these, uh, the teachers that have come to the West, and the acceptance on the part of the students of the authority of the teachers. It's, it's so interesting because you said, as you pointed out, it had to do with, you know, these kind of more hip people coming in and saying, hey, yeah, we're interested in Asian traditions, and, and then t- accepting a authoritarian structure in these meditative traditions. So if you could just mm-hmm. comment a little bit on that, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. So your first point about the Mahayana, and here I probably should defer to Taigen as someone who's translated monastic codes, um, but part of the milieu there in the 13th century as Taiga knows much better than I, um, and some of the debate between uh, pre-existing Buddhist denominations and new imports like Soto Zen with Dogen, Rinzai Zen with Asai, had to do with the status of the precepts, and that getting played out in monastic codes. And to keep it sort of simple, you know, again, this is your question about Mahayana ethics. Um, there were some who, you know, took the Mahayana doctrine of emptiness in a more radical direction and saying, well, maybe even these detrimental mental states are empty. And maybe if we do try to purify our mind of them, are we fixating them? Or as one of you just said, reifying them. And in that respect, getting more caught up in them, um, maybe we should really not go in that direction and see them as empty and really deepen our insight into emptiness. And that presumably will lead to an awakening, which secondarily will have ethical fruit. Um, But a lot of the debate was um, about different sets of precepts and different types of uh, monastic codes. And there were some people at the time of Dogen and Asai, and Asai is one of them, who said we should keep the traditional monastic codes, which really are about restraint. They also have a lot to do with making sure monastic life is harmonious without monks, you know, getting angry at each other, being tense all the time. Um, But some of them were saying, yeah, we need the monastic code. That's the base practice restraint thing. But then we have bodhisattva precepts. And I don't know in your sangha whether you work with the 16 precepts of Dogen or other sets of precepts. You do. Okay. And so as some of you may know from those precepts, um, a little bit different than that verse we saw at the beginning today, refrain from the detrimental, cultivate the wholesome, purify the mind. Dogen, giving that kind of a Mahayana compassion spin, as you know, yeah, restrain from the detrimental, cultivate the wholesome, liberate sentient beings, rather than thinking about purifying my mind. And so in some cases, what some thinkers were saying, and this is the Mahayana thing, is we can do the restraint in the monastic code, but let's have another set of precepts. You can think of the master code as like, you know, 250 or whatever precepts, but let's have other sets like the 16 and or the 48. There's a list of 48 and then 10 others from certain Buddhist texts. 
And those will be the compassion side of things. Um, those will have to do with, yeah, looking out for other people rather than just keeping your act together in the monastery so you don't piss people off. And by extension, that's a better way to purify your personal mind. Um, yeah, and uh, getting back to your other point, um, yeah, the whole institutionalization or the forms of Buddhism in the West, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies or the IMS, the Insight Meditation Society here in Massachusetts. It's the East Coast um, comrade of Spirit Rock, um, Jack Hornfeld out there in Marin County. But I was talking at one point with a few people, Andy Olensky and Musung, and we were talking about exactly what Fushin was saying in terms of institutionally setting up your Roshi um, as a kind of enlightened being, kind of the guru on the pedestal. And we were observing how that doesn't happen as so much in the insight meditation circles. You know, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Kornfeld, um, Sylvia Bernstein. Because there, they don't necessarily have their own sangha. They keep each other's feet to the fire. They're more of a fellow seeker. And so it's interesting when you hear about, you know, sex scandals and power issues in American sanghas, overwhelmingly, they're Zen and Tibetan sanghas where you do have that hierarchy with the guru, the teacher, the Zen master, and the disciple bowing at that person's feet. And in the insight world here in North America, um, the teachers are much more egalitarian. They're more egalitarian relative to their students. Some of them don't even have sangha. They're just doing workshops at Spirit Rock and IMS out here in Barrie, Massachusetts. Um, but I think you're onto something, Fushin, just the hierarchy and what that sets up in terms of power, maybe projection on the part of the student, um, you know, the, the senior monks not being able, and we know this in some of the sex scandals in American sanghas, the senior monks not being able to, you know, criticize the guru, the, the Zen master. And is that ultimately a form of enabling or, you know, not listening to what women are saying about what the, you know, often male teacher is doing to them? Um, so, yeah, lots of issues there. I know there are one or two other hands. I know Eve, and there was something, someone else you uh, saw, Tigan, right? Uh, David Weiner is next. Yeah, hi, David. Unmute myself. First, I just want to thank you. There's so many different things, having lived in Japan myself and uh, having to live under Gimu and Giri, <laughs> the, the uh, sense of obligation or responsibility, duty, and then Giri more, more even deeper of obligation. Um, but unfortunately I have an 1130 zoom call I have to leave for. Um, so I guess I'll send some of my questions to Tigan and have them forward them to you, but thank you very much. Your interest, what was most interesting to me today was the talking of the yoke and, and yoga and the yoke. And it's interesting how we in the West look at the precepts and we take them with the Abrahamic, uh, thou shall not. You know, as a disciple of Buddha, I, sh I will not kill. And I'm wondering, uh, I, I'm trying to turn it in my own mind to saying not, I, I will not kill, but rather as a disciple of Buddha, I will respect all life. As a disciple of Buddha, I will respect the property of others and only receive humbly that which I receive, which is, you know, taken and make it into a positive. 
rather than taking it as something that is a, you know, a commandment, you know, uh, mm-hmm. from above, a yoke, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. an internal drive rather than an external drive. Yeah. I'd hear your comment on that before I leave. Well, one thing, David, I just dropped my email address into the chat. It's cives at stonehill.edu. And both David and anyone else there, if you wanna, want me to send the PDF of that piece that uh, is sort of in the background of my PowerPoint today, or yeah, if you have a question, um, feel free to come directly to me. We don't need to you know, burden Tigan as the relay guy. Um, and that way we can continue this dialogue. I always you know, enjoy this sort of thing with practitioners. So um, if you do have a question and you need to log off now like David, yeah, um, feel free to shoot me off an email. Or again, if you want me to send you that PDF of the piece, um, you now have my email address. Can you all find it in the chat? Is it there? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and David, yeah, if you would, thank sorry. You, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Others. So, uh, uh, Eve and then uh, Kathy Bingham. So I I guess the relationship between, you know, Buddhism in general and Zen or Chan Buddhism is, um, and and Confucianism is played out differently in different times and places. I I was in um, Seoul, because I've been there twice. One of the times I was there, I went to this place. There's a mountain that's now in the city. And there's still places there where people are practicing shamanism and I saw that I saw somebody doing an exorcism dance and there's um, a a site at the top of the mountain that people said was the site for a a Buddhist monastery and they said it was there because the Buddhist monks had been exiled um, outside the gates of the city um, when Confucianism you know came into Korea and had um, and and that had um, you know been one of the supports of the the, of the of, you know the given order the authoritarian social order and 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 the Buddhist monks there were outside of that um, and I don't know you know what happened in in China with 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 Chan. Buddhism and Confucianism, but it does seem to me that, uh, yeah, I mean, as you kind of alluded to, that that Chan um, Buddhism in, in China was heavily influenced by Taoism, and that, that a lot of people did see that as an anti-authoritarian um, strain that that was, you know, some counter to Confucianism. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean, the other thing I wanted to say about like authoritarianism and and Buddhist practice was that uh, when you were mentioning those teachers in the insight uh, meditation circles, I don't think any it's it's I don't think it's accidental that they're all from Jewish backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I think in American Buddhism that there that there has been um, you know some like confluence of the of um, you know Jewish principles of social justice and and Buddhism, and and it's evident by some of the teachers, like like for instance Bernie Glassman. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Tigan thinks about that, but you know, in any tradition, you know, when you look at it, I mean, has both. I, I mean, certainly, you know, both Judaism and Christianity 
Um, there's been times and places where, you know, religious practice supported existing regimes and times and places where it didn't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank I, you. I think, uh, go ahead, Chris. If you, no, I think it, it sort of uh, empirically, historically, yeah. The the I don't necessarily like to use the expression "jubu," but you know the jubu element in the North American Buddhism. People of Jewish background, um, yeah, becoming major Buddhist teachers and writers. Um, yeah, that's a whole interesting discussion in itself, but. To some extent, yeah, a good, yeah, uh, I, I would argue that that accounts at least for some of the social justice orientation you see in North American Buddhism, you know, what some people choose to call engaged Buddhism, um, the Jewish prophetic tradition, the commitment to justice, to kun alum, um, you know, healing the world, um, all of that, I think, yeah, it gets reflected to some extent in uh, engaged Buddhism. So uh, maybe we have time for, there's a couple people who've have, uh, had their hands Kathy. up. Uh, Kathy and Juan, Juan Pablo coming to us from Argentina. Do you ha- can you stay with us or, or do you need to go, Juan Pablo? I just, uh, well, Kathy was first. Let's, so if you can keep your uh, questions concise uh, or comments, uh, Kathy first. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, looking at all these people, hard to get oriented who I'm talking to. Anyway, one of the things that went through my mind as, as we were talking, I just read an article, I'm bringing this kind of to current. Uh, I just read an article about the fact that in the United States, we're kind of set up being, we're setting up ourselves in a way almost for a civil war. Uh, And and the discussion was, you know, it was looking at um, how this has developed over time and that groups of people um, tend to associate with others who believe, believe their views, agree with them, or, or share the same opinions, and then become more and more um, entrenched in that position. And, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, we go further and further because we're with people who agree with us and we're not so much associating with the larger um, everyone in the culture. Uh, And so I was thinking about this, this has implications, you know, it's like, you know, thinking about Japan, you know, when they were uh, supporting a more totalitarian position, uh, uh, we're not doing that anymore, but there seems to be uh, some need for skillful means of some kind to figure out how to be part of a larger um, culture, national picture, uh, and still uh, hold the beliefs that we have, but but trying to sort out how do we interconnect um, mm-hmm. more with people who don't uh, feel that way. And I just wondered what might speak to that. Yeah, yeah, we could probably spend the the rest of the day on that one, but thank you for broaching that because it is so current and it's much more important than what Zen masters were doing in 1200 in Japan. Um, just, a, you know, a, a few thoughts that come to mind in terms of, you know, approaching the divisiveness and the tension 
and the trend toward possible violence or actual violence and, um, yeah, authoritarianism. I mean, one, one thing I find is, you know, if it is ultimately, especially, you know, if we think about what we required to back off from some of the divisiveness and violence right now and be able to come together and address the climate crisis, um, one thing I find that's, you know, skillful or helpful coming out of the Zen tradition is avoiding binaries, um, you know, really being hypervigilant about my othering of them, the us, them, with the reification, you know, Trump supporters are like this, or Biden supporters are like that. Um, and that way we can settle into camps. And I, I find, you know, especially for me, as you can tell, I'm a professor, I'm pretty hyperverbal, I've been doing a lot of talking today. Um, but thinking about not just, you know, the traditional virtue of eloquence, but the virtue of deep listening, um, which I think Buddhism lends itself to, and the ability to listen um, to everyone's story and basically share your own story. Um, I was in a conversation with someone recently about families now um, with, you know, perhaps having part of the family being Trump supporters, part of the family being Biden supporters. Um, and, and what do you do with that? And I think a lot of it is, you know, being able to hear the other person's story um, and realize, yeah, in terms of Buddhist, you know, doctrines, we're all socially conditioned. Various things in my life, maybe certain blessings, certain curses um, came together and, you know, constellated as Chris Ives with his political convictions, whereas my sister-in-law may have had a different background, etc., and just be able to recognize that we're all conditioned beings, um, hear the other person. And then ultimately, you know, for me, if it's, you know, a Buddhist approach, it's about reducing suffering. And now we may disagree about what kind of suffering merits attention. You know, is it a suffering of, you know, young African-American men? Or is it the suffering of cops who are misunderstood and, uh, you know, on the receiving end of insults these days? But at the very least, to be able to come together and say, okay, you know, how is it that you came to be a Trump supporter, a Biden supporter? You know, what are you dealing with? Let me hear your story. And I think sometimes, you know, one way to find common ground is to say, yeah, I have anxiety about economic security, too. I have anxiety about change um, and, and try to find that common ground rather than succumbing into um, binaries that I find sometimes not accurate and not productive, like red state, blue state, um, or monolithic Republican versus monolithic Democrat. So um, those are just a couple of thoughts. Um, and uh, I know it's insufficient, but just off the top of my head, those are a few ideas. Thank you very much, Chris. I think that that was very helpful. Um, of course, it's a huge problem. But uh, just last uh, comment, uh, Juan Pablo, thank you for joining us from Argentina again. Thank you, Tiger, and thank you, thank you Christopher. Um, there's a lot of things in my mind now, and thank you so much for, for that. Um, the first thing is um, I wanted to ask you, Christopher, it's about this relationship between Sassen or Buddhism, I think, and accommodation. Because uh, I don't know if you, you can say that there is maybe an intris intrinsic relationship between what we experience in Sassen, like equanimity or whatever, and that kind of uh, accommodation to power, accommodation to, 
to um, to structures or whatever. So I want I want you to speak a little bit about that if you can. And uh, because what what I see in Latin America, for example, is that Buddhism has entered mostly the upper classes. You know, like the um, the most wealthy classes. And and that's a phenomenon I have been thinking about from, from some time. And we have here in Latin America the experience and the, the example of uh, theology of liberation, you know. And I have been trying to think a little bit in parallel how can Buddhism express in Latin American land. So that's the first question you can yeah, say I, something about it. And thank you for acknowledging that. I mean, I mentioned in passing that a lot of the great Zen teachers from Japanese history did come from upper classes. And uh, they, you know, in terms of schmoozing with the imperial family or the ruling dictators, um, in many ways, they were schmoozing with relatives or people they went to school with or, um, you know, were in the same social circles. And, um, and I think that's something to think about. Yeah. At present, I mean, in some ways, we're all privileged to be able to spend this hour and a half together. Um, I trust none of you are multitasking right now and working a job while keeping one ear on this. Um, And yeah, for a lot of people, you know, working several jobs, if they're lucky enough to have a job right now to avoid getting evicted, maybe not necessarily open up that much time to sit in Zazen. So yeah, there's class issues, privilege issues, you know, all over this, it's heavily inscribed. And and thank you for also flagging that, yeah, in many cases, it's, you know, upper class or more well-to-do educated people, um, you know, practicing Buddhism. Not necessarily, but um, often that has been the case. Um, and in terms of your question, yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. Like, you know, if we pull back from the idea that, you know, like my old mentor, Abe, and I had that slide about him, you know, just meditate you know, breakthrough with your koan, you know, uh, uh, attain awakening as an insight into emptiness, and you'll be automatically equipped with wisdom and compassion. Um, If we pull back from that, it doesn't necessarily mean, well, no, there's no ethical fruits in Zazen. But it's an interesting question. Um, You know, when we're doing Zazen and any fruits we get from that, to what extent are they more existential, helping us deal with... um, what, our mortality with anxiety to, in a sense, transcend by finding a kind of peace of mind um, and equanimity that can be there on good days and bad times, um, you know, at all times as a kind of religious orientation versus Zazen offering ethical fruits. And we mentioned a minute ago, yeah, becoming more aware of your anger or desire, um, opening up space between them and action and being less apt to act on them. Um, but you're onto something. I mean, maybe there are certain things about Zazen. Yeah, it may make you more mindful, be able to be a better listener, or that whole idea in Buddhism and in Zen about seeing things more clearly. Maybe Zazen helps us break through some of our bias. Even though there's maybe no total objectivity, maybe the more we sit Zazen, the more we can sit with situations rather than immediately making them out to be the bad guys or immediately taking a stand. Um, as an ethical fruit. But your your first question, you know, does Zazen ultimately, um, even if it has some of these other fruits, does it not get set up and practiced in a way that is a kind of go with the flow? 
Um, whether it's, yeah, in Zazen, I don't necessarily want to be thinking, making distinctions between right and wrong, or I like and I dislike, let go of that, be more calmly present, non-judgmental. That's often how mindfulness is described as sort of a, a, a non-judgmental bare attention. So does that erode our ability maybe coming out of meditation, to make judgments. That's uncool. I don't like what the police are doing to that group of people or what happens to women in the workplace. Um, yeah, so what, to what extent does Zen you know, undermine the ability to make distinctions, which in many ways are central to ethics and central to social activism, um, having a sense of this isn't right, and therefore we need to you know, work toward an alternative. And so then the question is, you know, and this is getting back to the theme, maybe this is a way to end today, the whole question of social ethics. Maybe when you really get down to it, social ethics, what is the problem? How is power operating? Who's suffering? Whose interests are at stake? What's the historical context? Um, A lot of it's just hard work. And so the question is, maybe sitting zazen isn't going to make you um, a totally savvy prophet or social activists, maybe a lot of that comes from other sources, just doing the hard work of listening to others, studying, um, banging up against things. And then the question is, well, maybe Zen at least, or our practice and the fruits can inform how we go about doing the hard work of educating ourselves and others, figuring out modes of activism, intervention, forms of resistance, um, Maybe what's going on is that's not necessarily totally directed by our Zen practice, but Zen practice gives us certain supports to be a better listener, to not be as reactive, to have the patience and perseverance to hang in there for the long haul. Um, And then, yeah, just finally, so what would the Zen stance be on, I don't know, Trump or Biden or filling the new open Supreme Court seat? Um, You know, maybe there, yeah, you can pull from Zen resources. Maybe you start off by saying, yeah, it's about reducing suffering. Okay, what forms of suffering? Who's suffering? But it's hard work. And that's where I think, you know, just a final comment, a lot of people, including my old mentor, Abe, I don't want to say they were intellectually lazy or morally lazy, but there has been historically in Japan a certain glibness, like, oh, once you meditate and wake up, then you'll know what to do as opposed to saying, man, as we all know, ethical issues are so complex and yeah. figuring out how to respond and do so in a way that's not reactive or impatient or in judgment. I mean, that's a lifelong sustained labor. And historically, I think Zen has avoided that labor. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can yeah. do it ourselves. There's, there's something that I was thinking, no? And, um, and these days I have been thinking Sasen, of course, and meditation and Buddhism, even Buddhism is not enough. And I was remember one essay uh, from uh, Gary Snyder, no? and this from the 60s, Buddhism and the Communist Revolution. Right. And he says like these two sources, these two moral sources or these two practices, Buddhism and the, the West and the political uh, philosophy of the West and they have to be in some way integrated or something like that so I think yeah we have or at, at least for my practice I, 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 I remind myself Buddhism is not enough yeah 
And that's so, hard work, isn't it? <laughs> so thank you. I think we need to uh, end on that note. And yes, I would recommend reading Gary Snyder to everyone. Um, and, and Chris, thank you for really helpful, helpful, wonderful talk. And, and I, if I may, at this point, uh, David would uh, 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 meet us in a, ch a closing chant.